This is a Sunday talk by Joel, titled Everything is Love, and a corresponding guided meditation with Andrea, recorded April 9th, 2000, at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. There's an ancient story, I think it comes from the Hindu tradition, but like all these teaching stories, it could be from anywhere, and it's about ten monks who are making a pilgrimage. And they're very, very good friends. They've been uh, monks together, Dharma brothers together, or whatever, for years and years. And they set out on this pilgrimage. And along the way, they come to this river, which has uh, quite a swift current. And they have to ford the river to continue on their way. So they all get in the river, and they hold hands, and they cross the river, uh, struggling against the current somewhat. They make it across, and the head monk says, all right, now let's just make sure we didn't lose anybody in the river. So let's count off. So they go one, the next monk says two, three, four, five, they go up to nine. The last monk says nine. And the head monk says nine. We were 10 when we started. We lost somebody in the river. Oh my gosh. And they said, well, who, who? Well, well, we don't know, but we lost somebody. We'll count again. And they do the same thing. And they do it again. It always comes out nine. They're, they are heartbroken. They are crestfallen. They are crying and weeping and lamenting for the brother they lost to the river. And a wise woman comes along and she sees though these monks just weeping by the riverside. And she says, what's the matter? And the head monk tells the story. And they got to the river, they crossed the river, and how they counted, and they discovered someone's missing. Well, she realizes what's going on. So she says, well, uh, let's try it again. Count again. And I'll show you what what's going on. So they, they count off again all the way up to nine, and then she says, you, the head monk, forgot to count yourself. Oh, ten. Oh, oh, ten. Oh, we didn't lose anybody. Oh, now they're ecstatic, they're joyful, they're elated, uh, they embrace, they embrace her, and they're happy, and they go on their way. Now, this is actually a very, very rich story, spiritually speaking. In uh, mystical traditions, these stories are teaching stories. All traditions have teaching stories. I think uh, the Hasidics, for instance, the Jewish mystics, have uh, a very, very rich heritage of that. And Sufis have a very rich heritage of that as well. But you find it in all traditions. But they're not just to be enjoyed, although, of course, we should enjoy them. That's part of it. But we should really ponder them and see what's going on. So the first thing to notice is this story is a parable about our delusion and our suffering. And the story is showing us that the root of our suffering and our delusion is ignorance. Something we are misperceiving, miscognizing. So their whole suffering came from a delusion that they had lost somebody which wasn't true, turned out to be not true. And specifically, they were ignoring something to, to count the head monk. So they thought they had lost something, but they had never actually lost anybody. So all their suffering, and it was <coughs> real suffering in the sense that they were really suffering, was based on something that never happened. 
And when they found out their error, their cognitive error, and their ignorance was corrected, and they stopped ignoring that, then they had this tremendous explosion of delight, love, and joy. Now, this is, this is a, a very succinct way of describing what a mystical spiritual path is all about and what mystics from all traditions say. Our root error, our, our fundamental problem is one of ignorance. And in that sense, it's something about cognition or perception. We're not seeing the world as it truly is. We are not seeing reality. And because we don't see reality, we don't know how to behave realistically. We're not behaving in accordance with reality, in accordance with the Tao, for instance, the Taoists would say. And so we are out of sync with reality, and that's why we suffer. And when we see the nature of reality, and we know what's going on, then suffering ends. So this is, a, I think, the most prominent theme in the story. But there's some other interesting aspects of the story, too. Notice that all the monks suffering when they thought they'd lost somebody was rooted in love. It was because they loved each other that they suffered. If they were total strangers and they just happened to meet on the shore and decided to cross the river together and they lost one of them, and they might have been a little sad or, you know, normal human reaction. Somebody got lost, but they wouldn't have caused them this, you know, this horrendous suffering. If they had read about it in the newspaper, about 10 monks who crossed the river on the other side of the country and one of them got swept away, you know, they caused a little, oh, gee, that's too bad. They probably wouldn't have given another thought. It wouldn't have affected their day at all. So the reason that they suffered was because of love. Now, this is very interesting. Let's examine our own lives and our own possible reactions to various situations. And we can look at this as a spectrum that could range from joy, elation, uh, down to just sort of contentment, satisfaction, down to just sort of indifference, boredom, neutrality. Then to a little aggravation, disappointment, failure, defeat, sadness, anger, animosity, rage, all the way out to despair, desolation. So we have a range of our possible emotional responses to various situations. If we examine any particular situation, we will see it all goes back to love. It all goes back to love. When we're happy, it's because we have what we love. Right? When we are content, it's because not only do we have what we love, but we feel very secure about it. When we're at peace, the same thing. If we look at our boredom or our restlessness, it's because there is nothing in our environment that we love. It doesn't mean something there that we, we hate. There's nothing there that sort of gets our attention. It's just all sort of flat. And if we move into the negative range, 
If we are disappointed, it's because we were expecting something that we loved to happen or to get. If we're angry, it's because someone or something is standing between what we love. If we are jealous, it's because somebody else has what we love. Do you see what I'm talking about? We don't get angry and jealous about things that we don't care about. We don't feel bored and restless and so forth when what we love is present. And when we do feel joy and elation and peace and contentment is because we have what we love. Without the love, no reaction happens at all. Not even boredom. So, in our language, uh, words, especially words that deal with emotions and stuff, are very imprecise. We think of love as another emotion as opposed to hatred. And in one sense, we, we can use it that way, certainly. You know, I love that person or I hate that person or whatever. But when mystics talk about love, they're talking about something that transcends that. They're really talking about something in us, and it, we may not even recognize it as love. It may be a longing or a yearning. It's, it's what is in us that we fundamentally want that will make us happy. Often we, in our lives, think something is going to make us happy, and then we're disappointed, not because we don't get it, but because we do get it. And it turns out not to make us happy. You might really uh, want a person that you're in love with. And you might go through all sorts of heartache and uh, during the courtship and breaking up and this and that, and finally you get the person, and ten years later you don't want them anymore. And we are constantly in our lives, uh, very often getting things, and they make us happy at first, but it wears off a little bit. Whether it's a person or uh, a possession, an object, we get used to <coughs> the mind then is looking for something else. We don't really find ultimately what it is that we love. But maybe we should turn that around and say, maybe what we love, what we really want, what we, in our deepest heart's desire, is not something, maybe it is the love. Maybe the things that we love, just in one way or another, reflect that back to us. And the things that we don't love or don't care about, it's, it's not anything to do with a thing, it's just something about our perception, we don't see the love in there. And the things that we hate and want to get rid of and so forth, it's not only we don't see the love in there, it's reversed. We see them as threatening in some way. But what mystics say is, everything is a manifestation of love. That's what this cosmos is about. My favorite way of putting it comes from the Sufi tradition, God, Allah, says to Muhammad, when Muhammad says, what shall I tell people why you made this whole cosmos? Allah responds, I longed to be known. And the word in Arabic apparently can translate as love. I loved to be known. I wanted to be known. 
And so the Sufis say, all this is a divine self-disclosure. All of it. Not just the things that we like and, uh, and then say, well, I love uh, beautiful sunsets, but I'm not crazy about mosquitoes. But a mosquito is just as much of a divine self-disclosure as the sunset. The Christian mystics, mystics talk about uh, this world is a gift of the Father to the Son. And it comes out of this overwhelming, overflowing love that can't contain itself. So you have this image of an unstoppable river of love. Just keeps pouring out, pouring out, pouring out endlessly. The Hindu tradition talks about everything comes from bliss. Brahman, the ultimate reality is bliss. And everything comes from bliss and everything returns to bliss. It's all a a divine play, a leela, as they call it. That's also a beautiful image, too. It has the idea of an artist, or let's say a dancer who loves to dance. They can't help themselves. They're not dancing to get something. It's the dance itself that they love. I once saw a candid camera show. Does anybody remember that? So I'm aging myself here. And it was one of the most delightful of their episodes because all they did was put a camera in a waiting room at a pediatrician's office or something. And they put on some music. And they had these little kids, you know, four, five, six years old. And the adults left. And these kids were just, they were, nobody was around. They just spontaneously got up and started dancing. <laughs> just one after another. That was it. There was no, you know, big payoff or joke. It was just really delightful. But it shows you something. That's why they're dancing. They're dancing for the love of the dancing. Not trying to get something. In the uh, Tibetan Buddhist tradition, uh, the ultimate reali reality has three aspects. Emptiness, which is what we don't see about things. That indicates our misperception. We think things are solid and real, and uh, they appear, but there's no substance behind them other than the ultimate reality. Clarity relates to our awareness, consciousness, and compassion. And it's very interesting because they say compassion is the manifestive power of this ultimate reality, this primordial awareness. It manifests out of compassion. And they're looking at it from the point of view of us who are suffering. So the whole world is, in their terms, a mandala of compassion arising. Every moment the world is arising to say, look, look, wake up. Everything that's arising, a flower, a stone, a mosquito, when a mosquito bites you, it's really saying, wake up. We don't see that. So one of the things that we can do on a spiritual path is to stop turning away or running away or trying to escape from suffering. Because suffering is rooted in love. If we run away from suffering... We are running away from love. If when we're bored and restless, we go out trying to find something else, we are running away from love. And when something does appear in the environment that reflects that love back to us, we are missing the fact of what it is that's valuable here. It's the love that's valuable, not the object. 
or let me put it this way, the object is only valuable because it is an expression of love. In itself, it is nothing. Apart from the divine, it is nothing. Literally, it is no thing. When we misunderstand that, then we seize on that particular object, and because the divine play goes on, the divine dance goes on continually, it's going to disappear. We don't see that everything else is just as much a manifestation of love, and so our happiness turns into suffering. So instead of seizing on the things that we do love and trying to push away the things that we don't, if we could learn to be still with them for a while, if we could learn to have our minds be still for a while, just to be able to sit and see what is really going on here. That's our fundamental problem. We are not seeing what is really going on here. We're so busy running away from the suffering and trying to grab the things that we want that we miss it. And so all mystical traditions all begin with some form, some way of trying to quiet this mind, calm the mind, get the mind to stay single pointedly focused on something long enough for this constant restlessness and stuff to subside a little bit. It's really breaking this conditioning, this this, uh, uh, constant grabbing or pushing away, constant grabbing and pushing away. Because if we become really still, if we surrender all this self-centered grasping and pushing away, Reality will just become clear to us. It's already there. The truth is already there in our experience. It'll just, oh, become obvious. Oh, why didn't I see it before? Well, you didn't see it because you weren't looking. You're looking here and there and there and there and so forth, and you didn't see what was right before your eyes. So the Hindus say enlightenment or liberation is as obvious as the fruit in the palm of your hand. It's not some... Uh, wooey, far away, highly intellectual thing that you don't get because you're dumb. In fact, sometimes our cleverness is what stands in the way. It is so simple and so obvious. And this is really what a spiritual path is about. Now, to come back to the story, very interesting, and it's not uh, emphasized in the story, But when the wise woman comes and realizes the problem, she doesn't just explain to the monks what what happened intellectually. She makes them go through the process of counting again. They may not want to go through that process again. They did it three times, and each time it broke their heart. Do you know what I mean? And we have expressions in our language about that. When our hearts are broken, we want to mend them. We say things like, time heals all wounds when somebody's got a broken heart. The idea is, happiness will be when that wound heals up. When wounds heal up, they leave scar tissue. And they'll break again. We may actually harden our hearts, and a lot of people do that progressively through life. Boy, that hurts so much, never again. When I was in the film business, there was an expression. It's not just exclusively to the film business, but it's no more Mr. Nice Guy. 
It's when you try to do something nice for somebody and they, you know, stab you in the back. Well, no more Mr. Nice Guy. I had a friend who used to say that all the time. He was so good-hearted, he was always getting stabbed in the back. He couldn't help it. So, no more Mr. Nice Guy. But, of course, the next time he would do something nice. Sometimes with love, in terms of uh, human relationships, we get hurt so badly. Uh-uh. We won't allow ourselves to connect with other people. We won't allow that love to happen. The mystics go the other way. And that's what this open heart means. In the, particularly in the Christian traditions, very interesting the kinds of symbols they use. Julian of Norwich prays for a wound in the heart. Here we're all running around trying to heal our hearts. She's praying for a wound in her heart. Catherine of Genevieve describes how a ray of God's love pierced her heart. And that was a turning point on her path. And she was never without that love again. In the Hindu tradition, they talk about untying the knots of the heart. The whole idea is there's, we're knotted up. We won't allow ourselves to feel because we've been hurt. It's not because we're bad. It's because we've been hurt. But our reaction, our reactivity is always then pushing us away farther and farther and farther from what we really want, which is the love. So if we have the courage to go back, not in time, because we always have this opportunity arising, but instead of closing up, instead of retreating, to enter into it, like these monks are willing to do again. Well, let's count again. Oh, and they went through the experience right there again. You could say they opened their hearts enough to be able to bear to go through this awful experience where they're convinced at the end they're going to find out that they actually lost somebody they loved. And they find out something else on the contrary. So this part of the story is very, very important. And it speaks to the emotional distortion that our delusion causes. It does begin with a cognitive error. But if we only have an intellectual understanding, it won't do us any bit of good. The mind will say, oh yes, I understand, and the heart will still be closed, and we will still suffer. If she had explained this uh, to them, just as an intellectual theory, the mind might say, well, that's possible, but they would have still felt that they, mess that they missed somebody. Do you see what I'm talking about? This is why a mystical path and mystical transformation is really about a revolution of our whole being, not just what's going on in our heads. It has to have intelligence in it. If you just go through lots of emotional experiences without any awareness, without any inquiry, without trying to see what is going on, not forming theories like psychological theories about what's going on, but direct experience, direct awareness, then you'll just go through a lot of emotional turmoil. But when you bring that intelligence, that wisdom, together with that willingness to open the heart, to surrender, to feel, and to experience, that's really powerful. That is really powerful. That's how you cut to the heart of the things, as we say. You cut to the heart of truth. So one of the things that we want to do in a meditation practice, we want to calm our minds, and we want to get them to settle on one thing. This is the beginning of all meditation. It isn't easy to do. It takes time and discipline for most people. But then, sometimes people mistake that for closing everything out. 
I'm just going to focus on my mantra. I'm just going to focus on my breath. And sometimes in the very beginning, the instruction is ignore everything else because it's so difficult to do that. But then sometimes that brings about an artificial sense of peace. And we discover, oh, there is actually a little peace, a little joy inside. We really like that. We get attached to that. And then we don't want anything to interrupt our meditation, but particularly our thoughts and our feelings, particularly the disturbing ones. So whenever they come up, we push them away because we want to stay in this tight little spot of peace and contentment. That's the time we have to open up. That's the time we need courage. That's the time when we take all this into the meditation practice. So the peace and joy that we start to feel in the meditation, we don't cling to it. See, this is what we do all the time. Because that is a state that's going to evaporate. And if we're sitting there meditating and some troubling thought comes up, we start remembering how somebody you know, did us wrong, and then this and that, and we want to push that away. No, we don't push it away. Because all of this, any of this, is going to show us something. If we leave it alone, it will reveal something. So let me close just with uh, one of my analogies for this that some of you have heard before, but I think it's worth repeating. It's like the ocean, if you like the ocean. I love the ocean. To me, the ocean always has a beauty whatever state it happens to be in. Sometimes the ocean is just raging, roaring, a storm is going on, the waves are crashing in, there's thunder and lightning. It's got this energy and power that is just awesome. You ever seen an ocean like that? It's kind of frightening. But the fear is you're experiencing, if you're you know high up looking down at the ocean, if you're out in a boat on the ocean, you'll get upset because you'll be worried about yourself. But if you are just be in the presence of it without worrying about yourself, you experience that energy, which we might call fear, but you don't experience it as fear in a negative sense. You experience this power and awe and majesty. And then at other times, the ocean can be very calm and gentle and beautiful. It's just soothing, just rolling along. When I was a child in the summer, we used to go to a, a house by the ocean within hearing distance. I can remember falling asleep. And that just the sounds of the ocean, the waves just rolling in, just rolling. It's like, you know, being rocked in a cradle. Just beautiful, you know. Sometimes the ocean can be very moody. It's just sort of overcast and dull and it just undulates and it's gray. But that has its own beauty too, you know fascination. The ocean has all sorts of moods. At night, at day, at, at the sunset, sometimes very vivid and spectacular sunsets on the ocean, or dawn at the ocean. Sunset is sometimes not so spectacular. But you wouldn't want to get rid of any part of the ocean here. Do you know? You wouldn't want it to be always sunset. But you'd get bored with it after a while if it was always sunset. You really would. It's the whole of the ocean. And the whole of the ocean, if you like, is showing you all the possibilities for beauty. All the various forms in which beauty can be experienced. And that's really an analogy for our lives. That is what this cosmos is showing us. That is what our inner life is showing us. If we would just stop and look and have the courage to experience it. So that's my uh, little talk for the morning. 
And really, this talk is kind of a prelude or a preparation for a guided meditation that Andrea is going to lead us in. You could keep your eyes open or partially shut. Partially, did I say that? <laughs> partially open or shut. <laughs> but if you do keep them closed, keep them very gently closed so that if there's any tension, that you can just release that. Actually, we'll, we'll feel that. Speak us through that. Okay. <clears throat> just take a couple of deep breaths and... Infuse your attention with some energy so we don't sink back into oblivion here. And breathing out, just release any tension you might be experiencing in your body. If your face feels tight or your shoulders, just, just allow that tension to release with your out breath. During this few minutes, let us commit to practicing, remaining continually attentive to whatever is arising in our awareness. Let us commit to not push anything away, and to not grasp onto anything, but to simply allow the arising and dissolving of whatever seeks to be known. Not grasping to anything basically means, very simply, acknowledging thought, not pushing it away, giving it attention long enough for the very thought to consciously express itself but not to take you for a ride. That is what it means to not grasp at anything. To not push anything away, we will simply open to whatever the sensation of discomfort that is beginning to express itself. We will use the out-breath to release, to breathe space into whatever the direct experience is, not to change anything, but simply allow a presence of awareness in the space of it. So breathing out, <clears throat> sense your exhalation, 
dissolving into the space of the room, into the space of the moment. And from that space arises the in-breath. And from that same space, any thought or sensation that might arise, simply allow it and continue with the breath. Allow your attention to continually abide as it changes and dissolves. not to change anything in our experience is the same as saying maintain a continual presence of awareness that stops nowhere The arising of a thought, expectation revealing itself in the form of a thought, is an excellent opportunity to become aware there. Allow thought and expectation to dissolve in that spacious awareness right there. And continue in the flow of the presence of awareness. Use the out-breath to release and allow space for any sensation, be it discomfort or joy.
the moment of becoming aware of grasping to a thought, right there. Simply allow it to melt in the flow of awareness. Allow it to subside back into the current, the current or flow of the presence of your awareness that pushes nothing away and grasps onto nothing. Breathing out, sense and appreciate the open spaciousness of this willingness to be with. Sense the continuation from this willingness not to grasp. Sense the flowing through from this courage to not push away. Breathing out, feel the openness of your breath, the vastness as it dissolves into the space of the room.
Let whatever arises in your awareness be known in this spaciousness. As thoughts arise, there is no problem. They are immediately recognized, permeated with this spacious, open, flowing awareness. Something arises that seems sharp or solid, be it a thought or a sensation. Simply use the out-breath and breathe spaciousness right here. Change nothing. Simply breathe. Offer everything to this flowing presence of your awareness.
allow awareness to be brilliantly clear, exquisitely present. with careful and close attention to every movement, every changing sensation, any thought arising and dissolving. Notice everything. Feel deeply. Let attention flow very deeply with the arising and dissolving of anything. Use your out-breath to breathe space and release. Allow your heart to completely empty your breath. Completely surrender. This spacious ground is a fertile field for the arising of delusion. We do not want to simply abide in this stillness. We want it to be the field for our delusion to arise and present itself and not be fooled and recognize as we do not grasp or push anything away that it too dissolves into its true nature of empty vastness just like the breath.
You do not have to create anything. Simply remain open and willing and very attentive. Your heart will reveal all you need. You do not have to do anything. It may be the revelation of frustration, impatience, intolerance, it may have no name, it may simply be a sensation that seems sharp or solid or thick or cloudy, good, let it come. Breathe, let it be and reveal. And allow your attention to continue flowing, using the breath, breathing out, letting go. Also in this space, you can appreciate how a single thought that goes unnoticed for a few seconds creates an entire world of experience in this space of your mind.
Notice where your out-breath completely surrenders and turns into the in-breath. As we end the meditation, see if you could remain continually aware of a part of your attention that is flowing with the vastness of your breathing, flowing with the spacious openness of your heart. continue unobstructed in the course of the day. Unobstructed meaning you don't throw anything or any feeling out of your heart. You simply allow whatever's there to be there. And continue to appreciate how your outbreath is such a great gift of spacious awareness. <laughs>